Chapter 8, Part 2 of Practical Religion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 8, Part 2 Zeal. 5. Furthermore, if seal be true, it will be joined to a deep humility. A truly zealous man will be the last to discover the greatness of his own attainments. All that he is and does will come so immensely short of his own desires that he will be filled with a sense of his own unprofitableness and amazed to think that God should work by him at all. Like Moses, when he came down from the mount, he will not know that his face shines. Like the righteous, in the 25th chapter of St. Matthew, he will not be aware of his own good works. Dr. Buchanan is one whose praise is in all the churches. He was one of the first to take up the cause of the perishing heathen. He literally spent himself body and mind in labouring to arouse sleeping Christians to see the importance of missions. Yet he says in one of his letters, I do not know that I ever had what Christians call zeal. Whitefield is one of the most zealous preachers of the gospel the world has ever seen, fervent in spirit, instant in season and out of season. He was a burning and shining light and turned thousands to God. Yet he says after preaching for thirty years, Lord, help me to begin to begin. McShane was one of the greatest blessings that God ever gave to the Church of Scotland. He was a minister insatiably desirous of the salvation of souls. Few men ever did so much good as he did, though he died at the age of twenty-nine. Yet he says in one of his letters, None but God knows what an abyss of corruption is in my heart. It is perfectly wonderful that ever God should bless such a ministry. We may be very sure where there is self-conceit, there is little true zeal. I ask the readers of this paper particularly to remember the description of true zeal which I have just given. Zeal according to knowledge, zeal from true motives, zeal warranted by scriptural examples, zeal tempered with charity, zeal accompanied by deep humility. This is true, genuine zeal. This is the kind of zeal which God approves. Of such zeal, you and I never need fear having too much. I ask you to remember the description because of the times in which you live. Beware of supposing that sincerity alone can ever make up true zeal. That earnestness, however ignorant, makes a man a really zealous Christian in the sight of God. There is a generation in these days which makes an idol of what it is pleased to call earnestness in religion. These men will allow no fault to be found of an earnest man, whatever his theological opinions may be. If he be but an earnest man, that is enough for these people, and we are to ask no more. They tell you we have nothing to do with minute points of doctrine, 
and with questions of words and names about which Christians are not agreed. Is the man an earnest man? If he is, we ought to be satisfied. Earnestness in their eyes covers over a multitude of sins. I warn you solemnly to beware of this specious doctrine. In the name of the Gospel and in the name of the Bible, I enter my protest against the theory that mere earnestness can make a man a truly zealous and pious man in the sight of God. These idolaters of earnestness would make out that God has given us no standard of truth and error, or that the true standard, the Bible, is so obscure that no man can find out what truth is by simply going to it. They pour contempt upon the word, the written word, and therefore they must be wrong. These idolaters of earnestness would make us condemn every witness for the truth and every opponent of false teaching from the time of the Lord Jesus down to this day. The scribes and Pharisees were in earnest, and yet our Lord opposed them. And shall we dare even to hint a suspicion that they ought to have been let alone? Queen Mary and Bonner and Gardiner were in earnest in restoring popery and trying to put down Protestantism, and yet Ridley and Latimer opposed them to the death. And shall we dare to say that as both parties were in earnest, both were in the right? Devil worshippers and idolaters at this day are in earnest, yet our missionaries labour to expose their errors. And shall we dare to say that earnestness would take them to heaven, and that missionaries to heathen and Roman Catholics had better stay at home? Are we really going to admit that the Bible does not show us what is truth? Are we really going to put a mere vague thing called earnestness in the place of Christ and to maintain that no earnest man can be wrong? God forbid that we should give place to such doctrine. I shrink with horror from such theology. I warn men solemnly to beware of being carried away by it, for it is common and most seductive in this day. Beware of it, for it is only a new form of an old error that old error which says that a man can't be wrong whose life is in the right. Admire zeal, seek after zeal, encourage zeal, but see that your own zeal be true. See that the zeal in which you admire in others is a zeal according to knowledge, a zeal from right motives, a zeal that can bring chapter and verse out of the Bible for its foundation. Any zeal but this is but a false fire, it is not lighted by the Holy Ghost. I pass on now to the third thing I propose to speak of. Let me show why it is good for a man to be zealous. It is certain that God never gave man a commandment which it was not man's interest as well as duty to obey. He never set a grace before his believing people, which his people will not find it their highest happiness to follow after. This is true of all the graces of the Christian character. Perhaps it is pre-eminently true in the case of zeal. A. Zeal is good for a Christian's own soul. We all know that exercise is good for the health, and that regular employment of our muscles and limbs promotes our bodily comfort and increases our bodily vigour. Now that which exercise does for our bodies zeal will do for our souls. It will help mightily to promote inward feelings of joy, peace, comfort and happiness. 
none have so much enjoyment of Christ as those who are overzealous for his glory, zealous over their own walk, tender over their own consciences, full of anxiety about the souls of others, and ever watching, working, labouring, striving and toiling to extend the knowledge of Jesus Christ upon earth. Such men live in the full light of the sun, and therefore their hearts are always warm. Such men water others, and therefore they are water themselves. Their hearts are like a garden daily refreshed by the dew of the Holy Ghost. They honour God, and so God honours them. I would not be mistaken in saying this. I would not appear to speak slightingly of any believer. I know that the Lord takes pleasure in all his people. Psalm 149, 4 There is not one from the least to the greatest, from the smallest child in the kingdom of God to the oldest warrior in the battle against Satan. There is not one in whom the Lord Jesus Christ does not take great pleasure. We are all his children, and however weak and feeble some of us may be, as a father pitieth his children, so does the Lord pity them that love and fear him. Psalm 103, 13 We are all the plants of his own planting, and though many of us are poor, weakly exotics, scarcely keeping life together in a foreign soil. Yet, as the gardener loves that which his hands have reared, so does the Lord Jesus love the poor sinners that trust in him. But while I say this, I do also believe that the Lord takes special pleasure in those who are zealous for him, in those who give themselves body, soul and spirit to extend his glory in this world. To them he reveals himself as he does not to others. To them he shows things that other men never see. He blesses the work of their hands. He cheers them with spiritual consolations which others only know by the hearing of the ear. They are men after his own heart, for they are men more like himself than others. None have such joy and peace in believing. None have such sensible comfort in their religion. None have so much of heaven upon earth. Deuteronomy 11:21. None see and feel so much of the consolations of the gospel as those who are zealous, earnest, thoroughgoing, devoted Christians. For the sake of our own souls, if there were no other reason, it is good to be zealous, to be very zealous in our religion. B. Our zeal is good for ourselves individually, so it is also good for the professing Church of Christ generally. Nothing so much keeps alive true religion as a leaven of zealous Christians scattered to and fro throughout a church. Like salt, they prevent the whole body falling into a state of corruption. None but men of this kind can revive churches when ready to die. It is impossible to overestimate the debt that all Christians owe to zeal. The greatest mistake the rulers of a church can make is to drive zealous men out of its pale. By so doing they drain out the lifeblood of the system and hasten on ecclesiastical decline and death. Zeal is in truth that grace which God seems to delight to honour. Look through the list of Christians who have been eminent for usefulness. 
who are the men that have left the deepest and most indelible marks on the church of their day? Who are the men that God has greatly honoured to build at the walls of his Zion and turn the battle from the gate? Not so much men of learning and literary talents as men of zeal. Bishop Latimer was not such a deeply read scholar as Cramner or Ridley. He could not quote fathers from memory as they did. He refused to be drawn into arguments about antiquity. He stuck to his Bible. Yet it is not too much to say that no English reformer made such a lasting impression on the nation as old Latimer did. And what was the reason? His simple zeal. Baxter the Puritan was not equal to some of his contemporaries in intellectual gifts. It is no disparagement to say that he does not stand on a level with Manton or Owen. Yet few men probably exercised so wide an influence on the generation in which he lived. What was the reason? His burning zeal. Whitefield and Wesley and Berridge and Venn were inferior in mental attainments to Bishops Butler and Watson, but they produced effects on the people of this country which fifty Butlers and Watsons would probably never have produced. They saved the Church of England from ruin, and what was one secret of their power? Their zeal. These men stood forward at turning points in the history of the church. They bore unmoved storms of opposition and persecution. They were not afraid to stand alone. They cared not, though their motives were misinterpreted. They counted all things but loss for the truth's sake. They were each and all and every one eminently men of one thing, and that one thing was to advance the glory of God and to maintain his truth in the world. They were all fire, and so they lighted others. They were wide awake, and so they awakened others. They were all alive, and so they quickened others. They were always working, and so they shamed others into working too. They came down upon men like Moses from the mount. They shone as if they had been in the presence of God. They carried to and fro with them as they walked their course through the world, something of the atmosphere and savour of heaven itself. There is a sense in which it may be said that zeal is contagious. Nothing is more useful to the professors of Christianity than to see a real, live Christian, a thoroughly zealous man of God. They may rail at him, they may carpet him, they may pick holes in his conduct, they may look shy upon him, they may not understand him any more than men understand a new comet when a new comet appears but insensibly a zealous man does them good. He opens their eyes, he makes them feel their own sleepiness, he makes their own great darkness visible, he obliges them to see their own barrenness, he compels them to think, whether they like it or not, what are we doing? Are we not no better than mere cumberers of the ground? It may be slightly true that one sinner destroyeth much good, but it is also a blessed truth that one zealous Christian can do much good. Yes, one single zealous man in a town, one zealous man in a congregation, one zealous man in a society, one zealous man in a family may be a great and most extensive blessing. How many machines of usefulness such a man sets a going! How much Christian activity often calls into being which would otherwise have slept! 
how many fountains he opens which would otherwise have been sealed. Verily, there is a deep mine of truth in those words of the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians. Your zeal hath provoked very many. 2 Corinthians 9, 2 C. But as zeal is good for the church and for individuals, so zeal is good for the world. Where would the missionary work be if it were not for zeal? Where would our city missions and ragged schools be if it were not for zeal? Where would our district visiting and pastoral aid societies be if it were not for zeal? Where would be our societies for rooting out sin and ignorance, for finding out the dark places of the earth and recovering poor lost souls? Where would be all these glorious instruments for good if it were not for Christian zeal? Zeal called these institutions into being, and zeal keeps them at work when they have begun. Zeal gathers a few despised men, and makes them the nucleus of many a powerful society. Zeal keeps up the collections of a society when it is formed. Zeal prevents men from becoming lazy and sleepy when the machine is large and begins to get favour from the world. Zeal raises up men to go forth, putting their lives in their hands like Moffat and Williams in our own day. Zeal supplies their place when they are gathered into the garner and taken home. What would become of the ignorant masses who crowd the lanes and alleys of our overgrown cities if it were not for Christian zeal? Governments can do nothing with them. They cannot make laws that will meet the evil. The vast majority of professing Christians have no eyes to see it, like the priest and Levite they pass by on the other side. Zeal has eyes to see and a heart to feel, and a head to devise and a tongue to plead, and hands to work and feet to travel, in order to rescue poor souls and raise them from their lower state. Zeal does not stand poring over difficulties, but simply says, Here are souls perishing and something shall be done. Zeal does not shrink back because there are anakims in the way. It looks over their heads like Moses on Pisgah and says, The land shall be possessed. Zeal does not wait for company and tarry till good works are fashionable. It goes forward like a forlorn hope and trusts that others will follow by and by. Ah, the world little knows what a debt it owes to Christian zeal. How much crime it has checked, how much sedition it has prevented, how much public discontent it has calmed, how much obedience to law and love of order it has produced, how many souls it has saved. Yes, and I believe we little know what might be done if every Christian was a zealous man. How much if ministers were more like Bickerseth, and Whitefield and McShane, how much if laymen were more like Howard and Wilberforce and Thornton and Naismith and George Moore. Oh, for the world's sake, as well as your own, resolve, labour, strive to be a zealous Christian. Let every one who professes to be a Christian beware of checking zeal. Seek it, cultivate it, Try to blow up the fire in your own heart and the hearts of others, but never, never check it. Beware of throwing cold water on zealous souls whenever you meet with them. 
Beware of nipping in the bud this precious grace when first it shoots. If you are a parent, beware of checking it in your children. If you are a husband, beware of checking it in your wife. If you are a brother, beware of checking it in your sisters. And if you are a minister, beware of checking it in the members of your congregation. It is a shoot of heaven's own planting. Beware of crushing it for Christ's sake. Zeal may make mistakes. Zeal may need directing. Zeal may want guiding, controlling and advising. Like the elephants on ancient fields of battle, it may sometimes do injury to its own side. But zeal does not need damping in a wretched, cold, corrupt, miserable world like this. Zeal, like John Knox pulling down the Scotch monasteries, may hurt the feelings of narrow-minded and sleepy Christians. It may offend the prejudices of these old-fashioned religionists who hate everything new, and, like those who wanted soldiers and sailors to go and wearing pigtails, abhor all change. But zeal in the end will be justified by its results. Zeal, like John Knox, in the long run of life would do infinitely more good than harm. There is little danger of there ever being too much zeal for the glory of God. God forgive those who think there is. You know little of human nature. You forget that sickness is far more contagious than health, and that it is much easier to catch a chill than impart a glow. Depend upon it. The church seldom needs a bridle, but often needs a spur. It seldom needs to be checked, it often needs to be urged on. And now in conclusion, let me try to apply this subject to the conscience of every person who reads this paper. It is a warning subject, an arousing subject, an encouraging subject, according to the state of our several hearts. I wish, by God's help, to give every reader his portion. 1. First of all, let me offer a warning to all who make no decided profession of religion. There are thousands and tens of thousands I fear in this condition. If you are one, the subject before you is full of solemn warning. Oh, that the Lord in mercy may incline your heart to receive it. I ask you then in all affection, where is your zeal in religion? With the Bible before me, I may well be bold in asking, but with your life before me, I may well tremble as to the answer. I ask again, where is your zeal for the glory of God? Where is your zeal for extending Christ's gospel through an evil world? Zeal which was the characteristic of the Lord Jesus. Zeal which is the characteristic of the angels. Zeal which shines forth in all the brightest Christians. Where is your zeal? unconverted reader. Where is your zeal indeed? You know well it is nowhere at all. You know well you see no beauty in it. You know well it is scorned and cast out as evil by you and your companions. You know well it has no place, no portion, no standing ground in the religion of your soul. It is not perhaps that you know not what it is to be zealous in a certain way. You have zeal, but it is all misapplied. It is all earthly. It is all about the things of time. It is not zeal for the glory of God. It is not zeal for the salvation of souls. Yes, many a man has zeal for the newspaper, but not for the Bible. 
zeal for the daily reading of the times, but no zeal for the daily reading of God's blessed word. Many a man has zeal for the account book and the business book, but no zeal about the book of life and the last great account. Zeal about Australian and Californian gold, but no zeal about the unsearchable riches of Christ. Many a man has zeal about his earthly concerns, his family, his pleasures, his daily pursuits, but no zeal about God and heaven and eternity. If this is the state of anyone who is reading this paper, awake, I do beseech you to see your gross folly. You cannot live for ever. You are not ready to die. You are utterly unfit for the company of saints and angels. Awake, be zealous and repent. Awake to see the harm you are doing. You are putting arguments in the hands of infidels by your shameful coldness. You are pulling down as fast as ministers build. You are helping the devil. Awake, be zealous and repent. Awake to see your childish inconsistency. What can be more worthy of zeal than eternal things, than the glory of God, than the salvation of souls? Surely, if it is good to labour for rewards that are temporal, it is a thousand times better to labour for those that are eternal. Awake, be zealous and repent. Go and read that long-neglected Bible. Take up that blessed book which you have and perhaps never use. Read that New Testament through. Do you find nothing there to make you zealous, to make you earnest about your soul? Go and look at the cross of Christ. Go and see how the Son of God there shed his precious blood for you, how he suffered and groaned and died for you, how he poured out his soul as an offering for sin, in order that you, sinful brother or sister, might not perish but have eternal life. Go and look at the cross of Christ, and never rest till you feel some zeal for your own soul, some zeal for the glory of God, some zeal for extension of the gospel throughout the world. Once more, I say, awake, be zealous, and repent. 2. Let me in the next place say something to arouse those who make a profession of being decided Christians, and are yet lukewarm in their practice. There are only too many, I regret to say, in this state of soul. If you are one, there is much in this subject which ought to lead you to searchings of heart. Let me speak to your conscience. To you also I desire to put the question in all brotherly affection. Where is your zeal? Where is your zeal for the glory of God and for extending the gospel throughout the world? You know well it is very low. You know well that your zeal is a little feeble glimmering spark that just lives and no more. It is like a thing ready to die. Relation 3, 2 Surely there is a fault somewhere if this is the case. This state of things ought not to be. You, the child of God, you redeemed at so glorious a price, you ransomed with such precious blood, you who are an heir of glory such as no tongue ever yet told, or I saw, surely you ought to be a man of another kind, surely your zeal ought not to be so small. I deeply feel that this is a painful subject to touch upon. I do it with reluctance and with a constant remembrance of my own unprofitableness. Nevertheless, truth ought to be spoken. 
the plain truth is that many believers in the present day seem so dreadfully afraid of doing harm that they hardly ever dare to do good. There are many who are fruitful in objections but barren in actions, rich in wet blankets but poor in anything like Christian fire. They are like the Dutch deputies recorded in the history of last century who would never allow Marlborough to venture anything and by that excessive caution prevented many a victory being won. Truly, in looking round the Church of Christ, a man might sometimes think that God's kingdom had come, and God's will was being done upon earth. So small is the zeal that some believers show. It is vain to deny it. I need not go far for evidence. I point to societies for doing good to the heathen, the colonies and the dark places of our own land languishing and standing still for want of active support. I ask, is this zeal? I point to thousands of miserable guinea subscriptions which are never missed by the givers, and yet make up the sum of their Christian liberality. I ask, is this zeal? I point to false doctrine allowed to grow up in parishes and families without an effort being made to check it, while so-called believers look on and content themselves with wishing it was not so. I ask, is this zeal? Would the apostles have been satisfied in such a state of things? We know they would not. Is the conscience of anyone who reads this paper please guilty to any participation in the shortcomings I have spoken of? I call upon him, in the name of the Lord, to awake, be zealous, and repent. Let not zeal be confined to Lincoln's Inn, the Temple, and Westminster, to banks and shops and counting-houses. Let us see the same zeal in the Church of Christ. Let not zeal be abundant to lead forlorn hopes, or get gold from Australia, or travel over thick ribbed ice in voyages of discovery, but defective to send the gospel to the heathen, or to pluck Roman Catholics like brands from the fire, or to enlighten the dark places of the colonies of this great land. Never were there such doors of usefulness opened. Never were there so many opportunities for doing good. I loathe that squeamishness which refuses to help religious works if there is a blemish about the instrument by which the work is carried on. At this rate, we might never do anything at all. Let us resist the feeling, if we are tempted by it. It is one of Satan's devices. It is better to work with feeble instruments than not to work at all. At all events, try to do something for God and Christ, something against ignorance and sin. Give, collect, teach, exhort, visit, pray according as God enables you. Only make up your mind that all can do something, and resolve that by you at any rate something shall be done. If you have only one talent, do not bury it in the ground. Try to live so as to be missed. There is far more to be done in twelve hours than most of us have ever yet done on any day in our lives. Think of the precious souls which are perishing while you are sleeping. Be taken up with your inward conflicts, if you will. Go on anatomizing your own feelings and poring over your own corruptions if you are so determined. But remember, all this time souls are going to hell, and you might do something to save them by working, by giving, 
by writing, by begging and by prayer. O oh, awake, be zealous and repent. Think of the shortness of time. You will soon be gone. You will have no opportunity for works of mercy in another world. In heaven there will be no ignorant people to instruct, no unconverted to reclaim. Whatever you do must be done now. Oh, when are you going to begin? Awake, be zealous and repent. Think of the devil and his zeal to do harm. It was a solemn saying of old Bernard when he said that Satan would rise up in judgment against some people at the last day, because he had shown more zeal to ruin souls than they had to save them. Awake, be zealous, and repent. Think of your Saviour and all his zeal for you. Think of him in Gethsemane and on Calvary, shedding his blood for sinners. Think of his life and death, his sufferings and his doings. This he has done for you. What are you doing for him? O resolve that for the time to come you will spend and be spent for Christ. Awake, be zealous and repent. 3. Last of all, let me encourage all readers of this paper who are truly zealous Christians. I have but one request to make, and that is that you will preserve. I do beseech you to hold fast your zeal and never let it go. I do beseech you never to go back from your first works never to leave your first love, never to let it be said of you that your first things are better than your last. Beware of cooling down. You have only to be lazy and to sit still, and you will soon lose all your warmth. You will soon become another man from what you are now. Oh, do not think this a needless exhortation. It may be very true that wise young believers are very rare, but it is no less true that zealous old believers are very rare also. Never allow yourself to think that you can do too much, that you can spend and be spent too much for Christ's cause. For one man that does too much, I will show you a thousand who do not do enough. Rather think that the night cometh when no man can work. John 9, 4 And give, collect, teach, Visit, work, pray as if you are doing it for the last time. Lay to heart the words of that noble-minded Jansenist who said when told that he ought to rest a little, What should we rest for? Have we not all eternity to rest in? Fear not the reproach of men. Fate not because you are sometimes abused. Heed it not if you are sometimes called bigots, enthusiast, fanatic, madman and fool. There is nothing disgraceful in these titles. They have often been given to the best and wisest of men. If you are only to be zealous when you are praised for it, if the wheels of your zeal must be oiled by the world's commendation, your zeal will be but short-lived. Care not for the praise or frown of man. There is but one thing worth caring for, and that is the praise of God. There is but one question worth asking about our actions. How will they look in the day of judgment? End of chapter 8